I'm really sorry I had to postpone my um, DC trip. Yeah, well, we both do it to each other. Although I've been and, there. I've been there a few times now. And you're keeping score. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. You know, this take this as a compliment. You usually sound great. You sound like shit tonight. And on that note, bye, everybody. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you not feel well? What kind of thing is that? Out the gate, Jason? No, I take it as a compliment. I'm so used to you being consistent and sounding great. Are you not feeling well? I mean, I'm a little congested, but I didn't think I sound like shit. All right. I was exactly Trisha, weigh in? Um, your voice was a little scratchy. (laughs) That was a much nicer way to say. (laughs) Listeners, do you have any comments about my voice? It seems like I'm feeling very sensitive today. So thank you. What's special about today? No, not really. I'm fine. Um. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, though, Jason? Jason, to hell with you. You know what's funny? I I get congested as the day goes on. Mm-hmm. And at first, I thought I was allergic to cats because a bunch of my friends have cats. Ugh, whatever. Ill-advised. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm allergic. I've, can you develop an allergy to cats? Yeah. What? Yes? Yeah, you could just pick it up later? Well, no, it depends. I mean, how clean is that cat? Is well, that how it works? No, that's a well, different question, no. people, Some people say, like, if it's about dander, like, it's like, it, it, you know, that that's really the thing. So you might, I was around a Persian cat who, that was extremely clean, and I had no experience of anything else. I was like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. Maybe I can get a cat. And then I was with somebody else, and I was, like, congested the first five minutes I was there, and I was like, hmm, something's going on with this cat. So. I, I think I'm just allergic to nighttime. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> no. Whenever the sun starts to go down, I get really congested. Like I ran in here to do this podcast and like I had to do like a nasal spray because I literally could not breathe out of my nose. I don't know. I've never heard. I've heard people growing out of allergies. I've heard of people getting new allergies, but allergic to the evening, like allergies getting worse (laughs) as it turns to night. That's like a, I don't know. That's like a vampire thing or something. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not getting enough water. I don't know, but that's, it's what's happening over here. So that's by way of explanation of why I sound like shit. Uh, so I sound like shit. How are you then, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> well, feel free to critique how I sound, but uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. How was your weekend? Uh, it's been it's been really good. Um, some good kid soccer going on. Some good <gasps> relaxation. A lot of raking of leaves. You're a parent, right? As far as I know. Explain the soccer thing. Everyone signs their kids up for soccer, and it seems like a tremendous investment of your time. Oh, oh my God. I was just talking to somebody about that today. Right? I was talking about soccer, is on, soccer on the weekend and the distances parents travel to ensure yeah. that their kids are participating. And it's well, the whole weekend, pretty the much. The whole subculture, actually. It, no, it definitely is that. What's been interesting for me is that you know, my son is a very curious fellow, and he quickly, he's just constantly and has always been um, constantly in awe of the world around him, which is fantastic. It's a great quality. But when he was much younger, I was the assistant coach on his soccer team the first time he played. 
And the challenge was he was much more interested in the grass <laughs> and the butterflies and getting him to like attend to there's a ball coming at you or you should go after the ball was impossible. Now, I say all this because he's 10 now for the first time he's interested, which is great. And, you know, I mean, yes, there's a lot we could make fun of the whole culture, but in an age where, you know, kids sit inside and watch screens all the time, soccer is a nice way to actually get out and have some teamwork and have some fitness. So I'm glad he's interested. The challenge that comes with that is he hasn't been interested where other kids have been interested in playing a lot more. So a little bit of catch up going on. Uh, my daughter has always been more interested in sports, less interested in the grass and the butterflies. So um, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's fascinating, but end of the day, I mean, what I care about again, they're outside, they're interacting with kids, they're building character, team skills, and they're getting exercise. I mean, blah, 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 but you have to sit there the entire time. You know what I mean? Like, It is true. It is a different Not age. for nothing. I mean, I'm glad you're in, interested in your children's development. Like, sure, you're stuck with them. But, like, spending your whole weekend, I, I don't know. I, ugh, I just be like, wait till you're old enough that you can take yourself to your games. Well, it, no, it is, it is interesting. I, I, we may have talked about this kind of thing before. Childhood is just so different now in the sense – I mean, I played formal soccer when I was a kid. My parents did drive me to it. But typically, I would pick up a basketball and walk around my neighborhood and play with other kids. No parent chaperones. You know, it was just like freely – you know, free-range childhood. And that is just not – it's just not reality today, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. No. These kids have – um Kids have Uber and Lyft accounts now, like nine and ten year olds, just climbing into cars, taking themselves places because they're so f they're so busy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're so busy. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine who doesn't live in this area emailed me an article. Uh, I forget what national publication it was in, but it's about Howard County, Maryland, which I used to live in and is very close to where I live now, which is has a history of very deliberate integration policies, economic and racial, but it has become less integrated. And now the superintendent just announced that they're going to kind of redraw some lines to to integrate a couple of schools more. And as you can imagine, non-black non-hispanic parents and i don't just mean white because i'm, I'm saying non-black non-hispanic very deliberately parents are flipping out and it's like this is like you know progressive maryland white and asian liberals like all about integration until all of a sudden it's going to affect their kids and where they go to school so anyway what reminded me of it is one of the people leading the charge against it is a pediatrician which really makes me upset it happens to be a uh, South Asian American, but pediatrician who his argument is, no, 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 I'm not worried about my kids, something like that. This is going to be bad for the low income kids because they're going to have to ride buses to other schools. They're going to be really tired and not have enough time for homework. And it is such a crock of shit. I am so furious about it. I mean, that isn't that the whole theory behind busing? Like, that's how we've done it before. Well, and really protesting the busing. Well, exactly. Element? And and let's face it, <laughs> affluent kids, and especially in the cities where you two live, affluent families put their kids on buses for long distances to get better education. But all of a sudden, we're suddenly concerned about low-income kids, you know, being on buses too long when they're being bused to, to good schools with affluent within affluent communities. It's it's really, it's just maddening. Well, they're not really concerned, right? So that's right. No, I know that's, uh, <laughs> that's it's not a true concern. I just wish sometimes it's, it's, people would just come out and say what they want to say. Right. I mean, it's just like saying, like, you know, we're we're 
um, we're going to put this question on the census to enforce voting <laughs> voting rights, even though we have we have no interest in doing so in any other way. It's just oh, it's Yo, have you thought about the census comes out next year, right? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be mm-hmm. such bullshit. Like that means we're not going to have accurate data for ten more years. I think that if somebody, my, I mean, I'm wondering about this too. Um, I was wondering, like, if we get a new administration, do you think we will revisit some of the things that happened in this administration? Do we have the ability to do that? I mean, Trump did I mean, it with you... Obama. He reversed the entire presidency. So <laughs> my fear is that we're just going to be doing that, slamming the ball back and forth every four and eight years. That's what politics that. have I mean, become. I don't. I don't think anyone has ever perceived the census as a thing to make to really screw up, as much as potentially what would happen, what could happen here. Yeah. So I was just thinking about significant things like that, where there's going to be there's a large span of time where that information is expected to be utilized. Are people going to be comfortable with what comes out of next year's census, or will they want to revisit it if there's a shift in the administration? It's just, a good I, question. I wondered but, about that. But everything I've heard so far suggests. I haven't heard anyone raise even the possibility that you would do another census. I mean, I think the challenge is I'm, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but I mean, it's an enormous undertaking, right? We we have since the Constitution was first ratified, we have been on a 10 year cycle. I mean, it would be such an enormous like there are to Chris's point, there are a million other things that the next administration will absolutely have to go back and reverse. It's going to be it's going to be really crazy. But I don't, the census, it would I mean, it that would. I don't know. It would just be such an enormous undertaking, fight, expense. Um, there'd but be then, all kind, and then people would boycott it, and then it's like that wouldn't be accurate. It, I don't know. It's bad. But why would you? Why would you rest with something that you think is inaccurate? Do you know what I mean? Like, and people have to trust the data ultimately. So if it's if if we're unsure about whether it's trustworthy, well, it, who's we in that sentence? Because like, if um, if low income people or if Latino people or all sorts of all sorts of groups aren't registered, then some people are going to benefit from that. And those people will squawk long and hard about how accurate it is. And, you know, I mean, facts are in dispute constantly. So, I mean, who's the we who decides, oh, we need to do it again? Well, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, organizations, including government groups and government organizations need accurate, need an accurate census. So in some sense, it's actually nonpartisan. Whether people who fight about it are partisan or not, I think those groups are going to be the ones. It's not going to be low-income people protesting the census. It's going to be people who have to serve them. Say, you know, we don't actually have an accurate number. Hmm. That's my sense of it. I mean, that my sense of it is that in some ways, while the census has always been a political endeavor, and, and I yes. guarantee you, because we talk about whether how you name groups, how you consider different groups of people, all kinds of things. That's definitely a political um, quandary. But mm-hmm. I think that um, the issue of how you utilize the data is where I think the challenge, um, I think where the focus should be. It's like if you are thinking about how you can serve the homeless and you don't have an accurate count of the homeless, what point, what, what's the point of that? What, mm-hmm. use, what good is that? So I could imagine a group of people coming together and say we didn't have an accurate census and then potentially arguing for maybe i mean can you could you uh, seek redress in a court of law around that i we're about to find out so these are all great questions Trisha, and I think <laughs> we're about to find out do you realize that a year from today there'll be a new president's name or not wow 
Are you ready for that? I mean, are you ready for the next 12 months, really? I, I don't know. I would love to go away and come back. I don't want to live through the news cycle of the next 11 months. I think it's going to be really brutal and really punishing in a way that the last three years have not been. Wow, it's been three years. It's been three years. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. In what ways <laughs> has the news cycle of the past three years not been punishing? Well, that's Can what I'm saying. Like, I think that? it's what I'm saying is I think it's going to ramp up. I think the attacks. I mean, we saw this during the impeachment stuff, like the attacks on people are just going to become really intense and really ugly and just, ugh. well, it's, I, it's the very I worst think, of us. I think you're right. And, you know, listening to the, the impeachment inquiry, and again, this is a rabbit hole, I'm not trying to get us down. But what I do think is that I can just see Biden's candidacy being weakened day by day. Well, in you the know same- what? In the same it way, sounds like Jason's was. introducing a topic. Jason, <laughs> let's let's slide right into topics. Jason, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the Democratic field, but we that could that could be a very long conversation. We're talking about the volatility in the field and what that could or whether that could ultimately really weaken whoever the nominee is their their candidacy, their their ability to potentially win the election against. President Trump. And we have Biden, who has been the front runner for a long time, although Warren is arguably surpassing or at least catching up, but they have very different bases. You know, you have people who are afraid of a, of a Warren candidacy who want to jump in, but then potentially detract from Biden and give the candidacy to Warren. And I think to me, the big question, I mean, there are so many questions, but the big question is, Whoever wins, are they going to be able to, you know, kind of unite the party, attract the other the other bases? And I think you could argue. I mean, we know that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but we also know she, you know, she lost the electoral vote and didn't win as much as the popular as we expected her to. And a lot of people would attribute that to like people who supported Sanders and other Democrats and independents just were not happy with the candidate and were not willing. You know, they were willing to let Trump become the president rather than, you know, support a nominee that they that they didn't fully agree with. And I'm just watching this Democratic field. And the question is, are we going to see something similar uh, in the next election? What do you two think? I think that we're at a substantially different place than we were four years ago. Fighting against the potential of a Trump presidency when most people thought eh, we might be able to deal with it versus an actual recollection of what has taken place in the four years. Do you think that changes the um, the dynamics in any way? It's a great question. That that might you know that's one of the most important questions. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? When you say viability, we're talking about electability, right? Like Trisha suggested, where we are today is really different from where we are before. And I'm not certain that I have a grasp on what electable means in this current environment anymore. And maybe I'm being naive, right? Maybe electability is just where it's always been. If that's the case, then Joe Biden should do it. But like, I know that there's this, uh, there's an idea that people are afraid of a war in presidency and whatnot, whatnot. But are those people more afraid of a war in presidency than a Trump continued presidency? Doesn't that shift her electability in a direction, in the positive direction? I think wrapped up in your question of viability, though, because I, I think there's a distinction there, right? Viability may be related to electability, or it may be the question of, can this person beat Trump? 
which is a different, which is, I think, in some sense, a shade different, right? But stay there for a second, because is that different any longer? Or is that just the same thing? Like, whether you can beat Trump, whether you're electable, I mean, I think you, you answer one question, it answers the other. If you can beat Trump, then you're electable. Because mm. that's what we want, isn't it? Or am I not looking at that the right way? Well, I mean, I think that I think that is actually the, I, I think that if you are framing it that way, then the question of electability has changed, right? Okay. Because electability used to be because if you think about it, Trump was not electable in many people's minds, right? A reality star would not have been someone that you would have thought was electable. Mm-hmm. But guess what? We did. We elected. So if you're thinking about that old framing, then questions about whether a female candidate is electable is part of that framing. Anything is possible, as we've seen. If you put the right even a female president, you know, <laughs> like, after, I mean, we all we have to do is hark back to 2008 when Barack Obama was running and the possibility of a black man becoming president. Hmm. Right? That's an old electability question. It's impossible that a black man could become president. And now, fast forward 2019, we've got women running, we've got a Latino running, we've got an Asian person. I mean, you know, like that, there's a whole feel that we, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think. So, so I think there's this, there's a, there's a sort of, there is a tension between who can, who can dethrone Trump, which is, I think, a primary concern that is also getting muddled into the electability question. Sure. A, a, a woman who runs a great campaign and actually attracts, you know, a lot of support, of course they could win an election, as could, you know, just about just about any demographic. I mean, we could argue, like, we've kind of talked about this, whether an atheist could or whether someone who's not married could. But um, but I kind of think, like, yeah, they could. But then the, you could still get to the question of, like, who can dethrone Trump? The, what, what you said, Chris, is right, which is, will... I think both of you said, given the very large and passionate amount of opposition to President Trump for good reason, you know, in this case, would, for instance, the Sanders voters support a Biden if he gets the nomination? Would the Biden supporters support a Warren if she gets the nomination? Just as two examples. I I mean, I'd like to I I really strongly hope so, but I'm not so sure. Is it these people that we need to worry about? I mean, I feel like as Democrats, haven't we come around to the idea that we need to vote for the Democrat? Like, we're not going to do this Hillary thing again, which, by the way, she won the election, right? That's clear. But, like, we're not going to do this thing again where it's like, oh, well, if I don't get Bernie, then forget it. Like, although, then again, those are still the same people. I know. I don't know that people are in a different place. You're right. It's still the same people. I just, oh my God, I can't believe to worry about that in 2020. Well, That's the other thing, frustrating. Well, the, I mean, this is, and this is what I mean when I say, when you look at the reality of what has been crafted and shaped by this presidency, the fact that we might not be able to move beyond that question strikes me as tremendously problematic. Yes. Right. But at the same time, it's a question of what do you do when you have a disaster? Do you say, well, you know, let's start fresh. Let's build some, let's create something brand new. Or do you go back to your house and say, can we prop up this house? Can we, which is, which is, I think, where that tension lies between people who feel like if it's been wrecked, then let's start anew. 
But why go back to something that was maybe problematic anyway? I think hmm. that's where the, I mean, I think that's where, you know, for a long time, I always thought that the Bernie folks and the Trump folks were really similar in their ideology, in their, yeah. not necessarily their ideology, but at least their, um, the way they went about it. It was, let's just get rid of everything, right? Yeah. Um, so now we've seen what the side of get rid of everything looks like. Do you think that these folks can be soothed by the promise of let's restructure and recreate anew if it doesn't come from their dude? I don't think you're going to have the same issue with Warren people. Listen, I, I don't think, I think people who are attracted to Warren are, won't be, I mean, they'll be dismayed if she isn't chosen, but I don't think that they're going to be, um, I don't think they're going to be Warreners or whatever the word is. Yeah, that's I don't right. think, I, I don't get that sense, which is why I think it's really interesting that people have not really unpacked who the Bernie supporters are. And well, what that was about for them. But, you know, uh, I really like the point you're making. I think, though, that I think the tougher question is the opposite, which is if Warren gets the nomination. And, you know, look, there are um, a lot of affluent people who really affluent Democrats um, and even independents who probably would support a Biden would, you know, support a Deval Patrick but oh I, come on well well let, 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 him finish. Right, let, let me finish let me finish <laughs> sorry sorry but but i think see warren as really threatening for for two reasons one that you know she is saying i'm going to tax the hell out of some of you um and and two i think and you know frankly this is part of my concern about warren i i would vote for her in a second if she's a nominee don't get me wrong but she's you know she's making a lot of promises that um are not very realistic. She, some are, but some aren't. So anyway, I, that's I think I think you're right, Trisha. I think the Warren people would support a more moderate candidate. I'm not so sure about the other direction though, and that's that's I guess that's a, my bigger concern. See, I feel like the framing of all of this is so strange because, which was what which was which was my problem in in um in 2016 is I understood that it was about. Not necessarily lesser of two evils, which is how, I mean, nobody feels enthusiastic about that. But if you're framing it around survival, <laughs> no one understood that this was a survival question. And mm. so my thing is, do we now understand that? Or are certain people still being privileged in thinking that I'm going to hold out? Like I, Because for me, it's like I've, I've actually sort of come around to the idea that I think the dem the Democratic primary should be should go all out. I think I think we should tussle. I think we should fight it out. I think people should throw everything they want to throw at each other and see who emerges. But I want it to be such a vigorous fight that at the end of it, we can come out on the other side, having decided what we are about as a group. Um, and so yeah, good luck with that. I know. I, I've I know, right? But I, mean, I, I like the idea, but I am very skeptical that that's what will happen. And mm -hmm. that, I, but the question for me is, who understands that this is an existential moment, or at least Bla one black up, women, black women. Up, well, uh, oh god, the, the black one, women always group, understand. No, I know the one group I know will support whoever the nominee is is black women. I'm not sure about anybody else, but I'm because sure but, when we talk so, about privilege, black women have the least amount of privilege. Right. Right? Yeah. So that's why they're always 
that's why they can't be swayed by these ridiculous Jill Stein or bullshit Bernie ideas. <laughs> like no one cares about that shit. Cause at the end of the day, it's like, if this is about survival yeah. for, for black women, yeah. right. You know, where, whereas white women or white men can sit around and be like, I don't know, I guess Hillary would be just as bad as Trump. Like <laughs> those kinds of thoughts uh, that is that smacks of privilege. But my thinking right. is that those well people said. who are saying those sorts of things, maybe they've had a wake up call the past three years. You know, Hillary Clinton would not have been as bad as Trump. There, that's what I meant. There was a hypothetical Trump presidency, but now we now have the reality of a Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. So, what will those people do if now given the choice? There will be some people who are like, I never, I, I don't regret it. And that's fine. There will always be those people. But now that you've had a chance to assess the reality of what we have, what are you prepared to do this time around? What will you do? Will you look back and say, I want to continue four more years of this? Regardless of who, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, that's, to me, I just, I'm hung up on that. And maybe that's just my short-sightedness. And I understand the priv I understand privilege and I, and it's stubborn and, and the stubborn hold it has over certain groups. But their own institutions are under attack. The very, you know what I mean? Like that's at the core of it to me. What I think has struck me though, and this is partially related, is it's like when Obama was in office and they ended up with that blue dog Democrat group right? Pushing back at all of it. Everyone's like, oh my God, we've got a majority. We could do all kinds of things. And here comes the blue dog Democrats saying, maybe not. <laughs> maybe we won't all vote together. Maybe I don't we know. We'll right? see. I don't know. But what I think has been noteworthy to me is the pushback at Elizabeth from the Democratic constituents, right? Really, who are now saying, can we stick some dude in there that's like going to do what Biden was supposed to do, but isn't doing? You know what I mean? yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Pull the center. <laughs> also, I want to go back to something you said about uh, Warren's unrealistic ideas. You know, no one ever asked Republican candidates how they plan to pay for things. Oh, no, they no, no, no. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like she she and Bernie, what they have in common, frankly, with Trump is they have no qualms about making lots of promises. And I guess this is typical of a lot of politicians, but I was going to say politicians always make promises, but the no, Democrats no. are always the one to explain very carefully how they plan to pay for it. Well, and I, we don't, I mean, I think but, the first time I heard a Republican held, held, had their feet held to the fire was with this border wall. But even still, it didn't get the kind of press that this Medicaid for all is or, or Bernie's free education but, thing. Like it was, well, but I mean, look, I, you're right, but I would say this. When people ask how you're going to pay for it, it's not really that they need to explain it. It's that they're being called on their bullshit. Like, it's... No, I don't think that's at all. No, I disagree. I disagree. How do we pay for any of this shit, Jason? It we gets pay, paid for. We, we can never afford anything. We couldn't afford the tax break, but we yeah. somehow finagled it. Yeah, so and we did it, and we couldn't afford it, but we did it. So when there's political will and there's political capital, things get done. And yeah. we don't have to balance the book before we do it. We, we never do. We actually ask yeah. <laughs> We never be able to pay for these things when we do them ever. That's how it works. I think that the public has, has basically ceded that space to Republican talking points. Even us, even you asking that question is a betrayal. I mean, what, what, what's so unrealistic about any of those things? I mean, even if you move towards it and it falters and it doesn't, it, it is, is, it is an absolute, it's yeah. a, it's a step in the right direction. I agree. I and, guess. 
you know, that's my question. How do how come we don't evaluate it according to moving in one direction? Why must it be an absolutely perfect policy initiative when it's about sort of supporting vulnerable people or whatever it is? Like nobody talks about defense budgets. Nobody talks about any of that stuff. But it's like when I say I want I want to make sure kids are fed. I want to make sure this happens. People are like, how are you going to pay for things like that? It's almost as if we've conceded that we don't think about we don't think about this as a government for the most vulnerable. And yeah. I guess that that's true, but I think it's a lack of imagination on all sides to even like continue to come down on the, how do we pay for a question? It's like, we've got to move out of that space. I really do. And I think we have to start ignoring that question. Every time someone asks how we're going to pay for it, I want us to ask every, we want, I want us to retort back. How did we pay for A, B, C, D, E, F? Mm-hmm. And let that be the... We're still paying for all of those things. (laughs) Whatever those things are, that whatever it is, we're still paying for it because that's how that works. And I'm not saying it's it's for better or for worse, but that's how things work in politics. Like this idea that people have to come with, you know, the proposal and the budget and it's all supposed to matchy-matchy, that would be great. Maybe if we did more things, we wouldn't have a deficit and there there wouldn't be all these other things, but that's how it is. We try and prop up a better society and figure it out as we go along. So what Obama did with, with um, the exchanges, like, was that all paid for? No. I mean, but even, and even with Trump, I mean, you say that that's what they have in common, but maybe that's the very thing that works is that you are offering someone a vision. I think the difference is that people thought that the vision that Trump was offering was more in line with human nature, which is a kind of, I almost have to say a, a willingness to believe in in people's dark side, right? And so, in some ways, the question is: Do we believe that, say, Bernie and um, Elizabeth are are hearkening to an idea of ourselves that we haven't embraced? And I, I think that that's really the challenge. There is that: Do we really believe in this mission of being our brothers' keepers or our sisters' keepers or any of those language? Like, do we believe that? I think that Trump was able to create a vision of, of like, I'm going to take care of you, wink, wink. And people bought into that um, because they felt like that was something that is um, not unrealistic, right? Which actually in the end turned out to be unrealistic. He didn't take care of anybody except a very few. Jason, we have to wrap up, but I want to give you the last word on this. When you get a bunch of people in the room, in any room, and you try to get them to agree on policy prescriptions, in my experience, you know, I mean, obviously, if you get three or four people who are like-minded, it's different. But when you get a bunch of people in a room, the only thing you can get them to agree on is more money for certain things. Mm-hmm. And we've we've seen that um, in this presidency. And And you're right that, like, yeah, people, I mean, do think people win elections by promising to put more money into things that enough people care about, regardless of whether that's going to put us in more debt or increase the deficit. And that, I guess, bothers me. And that's not really a partisan issue. It's it's a, it's a bigger issue. So I don't know. This has been a good conversation. I feel like I have more food for thought. Cool. Well, we'll come back to talking about the election later. I'm really not looking forward to it. <laughs> the election cycle. I'm not looking forward to these conversations. Because I'm already pre-exhausted, but I guess I should buck up, huh? So, moving on to our next topic, we are going to talk about um, slavery and the Holocaust, and maybe 9/11. So, <laughs> buck up, everybody! Everyone just I... turned it off. They're like, "Oh, I'm depressed enough." 
You depressed me about the state of the country. I know. First, they were talking about the election, and it was terrible. (laughs) And now they want to talk about this shit. Okay, so more depressing than the current political state. The the Holocaust. Let's see. So the last episode that we had, Trisha had recommended the movie Jojo Rabbit, which is about a young boy who's in uh, Hitler Youth uh, in the forties, and he has an imaginary friend who is Adolf Hitler. And he befriends a Jewish girl and has his world rock because he thinks he finds out that the Jews are not evil. I had asked a German person about, I'd shown them the trailer and asked them what they thought about this American movie. And he's, his eyebrows raised and was like, it's, it's interesting that Hitler gets trivialized here. And I was like, oh, I never really thought about that. In any case, it got me thinking about a couple of things. One, a couple years back, maybe a year or two back, there was a hashtag that really proliferated on black Twitter, like if slavery was today. And it was just people cracking jokes about cotton and getting whipped and the rest of it. And people are having a really, really great time about it. And the thing that I thought about in contrast is that very rarely do you see people using the Holocaust as comedic fodder. And then I was thinking about other tragedies. It's like, how often do tragedies get dredged up? How do we deal with them in the public context? I don't want this to be a conversation about what is comedy because we have that conversation quite a bit. But I do just want to compare and contrast, like say slavery and the Holocaust. It's often that we can find some comedic use for slavery, but it seems that Jews never tolerate the trivialization of the Holocaust itself. What would you attribute those differences to? Are you speaking specifically of the Holocaust? Are you speaking specifically of Nazism? Because actually there's a history of like, I think that might be two different conversations because we do, we reference Nazism a lot. I mean, there was that whole show back when I was growing up, which is about some bumbling Nazi agents. Yeah. Uh, Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes. screaming at their phones right now. Like (laughs) Hogan's Heroes, right? So I think we we trivialize Nazism and and swastikas. The producers has that play. Yeah. Those are probably different things. Mm-hmm. because like we can do that. But when it comes to the Holocaust, like we tend, like Jews in particular, tend not to stomach or countenance the trivialization of that. If you remember um, many years ago, be, before she, I guess when she was an out and avowed racist, she, uh, Roseanne Barr was pictured dressed as Adolf Hitler, putting little gingerbread men into an oven. Mm-hmm. And this was for a Jewish comedy magazine. And in the Jewish... It was a Jewish comedy magazine and still Jews were infuriated, right? Because it's just like, this is not something that we are, yeah. we are prepared to joke about. And I just want to, I just want to look yeah. at those differences. Well, what look, do you think about that? I'd say two things. First of all, more recently, if you recall, Larry David, mm-hmm. when he hosted Saturday Night Live, I think last year, he made a joke about the Holocaust and people went nuts. I mean, I think the Anti-Defamation League like put out a statement. I mean, he was really roundly, um, you know, criticized for that. One thing that comes to mind, I don't know if this completely answers the question, but just as I think about the question, the Holocaust, the whole mission of the Jewish community pushing for education of people about the Holocaust is around the like concept of never again. There's this sense that like this could happen again if we're not really, really careful. And therefore we need to take it really, really seriously. And I think with slavery, I don't feel like there's a lot of, you know, fear of like that could happen again. It's much more 
that had devastating consequences and we're still living with them and let's confront them. I just wonder whether whether that's a difference where it's like, well, if you make jokes about slavery, no one really thinks there's a risk that suddenly people are going to be enslaved again in this country. Chris is making listeners. Chris is making. I mean, I, I look. You can dispute me, but I, I don't think any like people have lots of concerns about black people being disenfranchised and voting rights. But I don't. I don't hear too much fear of like slavery's coming back. But Holocaust, like I feel like Jews are, you know, are constantly vigilant about like this could happen again. Well, I think that's a strange. I mean, I think that might be a strange contention, right? I mean, the question is, is it because of the time limits on it? Right, like hundred years. As far as like seventy years versus yeah, two hundred, not even. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that the sense? Is that the sense? Or the the idea that there needs to be sort of like a a, a set of like circumstances to make one possible versus the other? Because I think the reason why Chris started to make a face is that we are in this current moment, and I don't think. I mean, I don't think you could convince anyone that or black people, I would say, that tomorrow we couldn't wake up and someone's like, we are going to reintroduce slavery in a certain... Because we see it. I think now we understand that mass incarceration is, is, is in some sense a form of that, right? And so we can see that play out very seriously for people. I mean, part of it, to my mind, is just the lack of education about slavery and our very sort of intimate... Under- we don't have the same intimate understanding of the cruelty... And the um and the embedded nature of um of sort of slavery that continues in the American imagination and tradition that we do with the Holocaust. And but should black people should we as black people be better protectors of that? The thing that I referenced before, I just looked it up, was back in 2018 in May, noted scholar Kanye West was interviewed, <laughs> and he said that slavery was a choice. So black Twitter had this all these memes about hashtag if slavery was a choice, and then the jokes flowed thick and fast for weeks. Now Kanye West is, you know, and you know, I don't like to t- make him, I don't like to make him a whipping boy in this podcast because I don't think that he's well. But Kanye West uh, put that out there, and instead of being corrected and censored, we made a lot of jokes about it, which is one way to deal with the tragedy and the trauma of that, but. It left me thinking about the wisdom of that, because if Larry David or something had made a joke about the Holocaust being a choice, you best believe people would not take to Twitter and make that hashtag. We know that to be true. You're right. And there's something. I don't know. know. Well, I do. I I do know know that. Well, first of all, I I don't want to. First of all, that was just that's one of many reactions. I think there were quite a few people who in in serious areas of journalism actually took to writing about the seriousness of um, slavery and really sort of unpacked the history of slavery. I think the question I think what you're talking about is sort of like what played well in the popular ethos. Right. And the popular imagination was the joking aspect of it. And so I I don't I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't think that black people don't take it seriously. I really don't think that that's what was going on in that moment. I think it was um, it, I think through levity, I learned quite a bit, actually. And so I think the idea that humor can't be an educational thing is probably what I'm pushing back at is that just because someone is laughing about a thing doesn't mean that you're also not learning at the same time. And I mean, I think that's where in many ways 
you can have a conversation like the Jews do with something like Nazism, which is a lot more comparable to slavery, which is a sort of which is a mass organizational system as opposed to a discrete thing like the Holocaust. Right. Which is, I think, why it feels like you can't joke about the Holocaust, but you can but you do see people joke about the circumstances and the ideology that surrounded the actual that surrounded maybe what led to the Holocaust, right? And I think that's why there's this sort of like comparable tension around slavery and say Nazism. I think those two things are much more um, entangled. And so we'd have to look at how those two work. Like we'd have to find, nobody's making a joke about what folks call the black Holocaust, right? Which is like the killing of and, and the burning of black towns, a specific action. Nobody's making those kinds of jokes. But they're making jokes about a sort of large system of ideas that are organized around slavery the same way they do that about Nazis. I do think that gets back to what you said before, Trisha, which is a good point, which it is just amazing and awful how poorly we are educated about, you know, so much. Like, everyone knows slavery was here and can say a few things about it, but the kind of... I don't know, the level of brutality and the brutality surrounding it, not just with like people owning other people, which obviously was awful, but all the all the other kinds of brutality that surrounded it. You're right that it's not something we I mean, even today in this country, I don't think we make a concerted effort to make sure that everyone's educated about it. I mean, I'm reminded way back when I was in college, I went to see Louis Farrakhan speak when he came to Philly. I remember, you know, one of his comments was as he likes to say things, he's like, you know, the Jews are pushing Schindler's list down our throat. You should be making your own list, talking to the black audience. And, you know, not not particularly sensitively put, but I actually was like, that's an interesting point. Like, we we again and again and again um, have ways, and, and I think the Jewish community has been very effective, at least in this country, in terms of, like, really lobbying to make sure people are educated about the Holocaust. And there's not quite that level of attention to slavery. But and, I mean, and not just slavery, but in the African experience in America. And I think that's, see, I would say that's what's missing. Like, I'm I'm reflecting what you said about learning through levity, Trisha, but I'm contrasting that to conversations that we have had about, say, the rise of Jon Stewart-esque punditry, is that there are very serious things happening, and then having comedians interpret those things, like, you know, John Oliver is a very, I mean, his show is very intelligent. He talks about really important issues and the people are laughing throughout the whole thing. You watch an episode of John Oliver and am I learning? I absolutely am. But then in sort of like the the way of Neil Postman, I'm asking, well, if everyone's reactions to laugh to this, how serious should I take the information being presented? Like if we can talk about like, say John Oliver is talking about how students are mired with student loan debt and that everyone who goes to school today will never make a living wage and the audience goes wild because of the way that he phrases that. I I mean, I'm leaving that and I understand more, but do I understand on a deeper level? And when it comes down to slavery, um, yeah, there are jokes to be made about it, but I think it's the brutality of slavery that I think a lot of Americans have swept under the rug purposefully for many hundreds of years. Slavery was a brutal system perpetuated by brutal human beings when we laugh about that uh, maybe personally i just don't want to laugh about it 
So I personally don't want to laugh about it, but also I think that there is definitely something lost. There's learning, but then I'm like, at what cost? But I think your assumption is that they're laughing at the brutality, which they're not. Because most uh, No, people... I'm not saying that. I'm saying you're laughing alongside learning about it, which yeah. then alters the information you're see- receiving. That's my interpretation. That's true. I think what we're talking about is the public's conception of slavery, which allows mm-hmm. it to be a laughable thing. And so what I'm saying is that I don't think, I think we're doing a much better job of it today than I and in than in in my recent memory of really communicating the cost of slavery to black people. But I think if I if I'm recollecting how I learned about slavery, it was very diffused mm-hmm. and very non-consequential in our own education. Yeah. And I so my sense is that that is why you can have a conversation about slavery that may not feel as serious as you want it to be. Is because that is actually how it's presented in it within our education system. Well, and that has me thinking about. Then I'm like, well, why is that? And I'm thinking about the fact that you know we have museums about the Holocaust. We have African American museums that have things about slavery, but like we don't have, you know, we don't have museums about the Black Holocaust or about the you know the disaster of slavery. And and I guess where that takes my head is well, the thing about the thing that makes it I'm going to use the word easier for us in the United States to learn the facts about the Holocaust then for people to accept that kind of education about slavery is it's easy for people in the United States, particularly white people, particularly white Gentiles to like not feel any responsibility or feel like they're implicated in the Holocaust. And the problem always with talking about slavery, I think broadly in this country is there's just so much defensiveness, right? Among white people that like, Oh, well, if we focus so much on that, then, and if it's like, Oh, black people, you know, have poor outcomes because of all of this stuff, then it's like, I am implicated in that. And I guess the other question to me is like, who are the, um, who are the carers of that knowledge in our community? And we have to deal with the fact that we don't have as much resources as the Jewish community does to mind and care for that. I mean, (laughs) like, listen, access to resources is a huge, is a huge part of how you get to navigate and create sacred spaces. They have access to resources that allows them to do that. You know, I think it took forever for us to get the African-American Museum. Forever. And part of that is like just looking at the legacy of like African-American like um, giving and their and, and our capacity to give and contribute. And I mean, that, that that's a serious thing. So hmm. resources are part of that. You know, resources to create... And, and tell the narratives and to tell and uh, the important elements about slavery. We don't have, we haven't had that capacity. I, I think resources are part of it. I think there's another part, which I've actually been thinking a lot about, which is organization. I feel like the Jewish community, and part of this is because it's a religion, not just an ethnic group. So obviously you have organization through the religion. It seems like every community has like a Jewish community center and a Bureau of Jewish Education. And these things are like really organized. Like there's a power structure, I guess. There's a base. The point. There's a base, and, and it's an organized base. There's a power structure through which lobbying can happen, yep. pooling of resources can happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and part of that's because of, you know, that's easier for an immigrant group who comes here voluntarily to do than obviously a group of people that was brought here forcibly. But that level of organization, you know, uh, black people have not really had the opportunity to have that level of organization in this country. And I think it, it, that's, it's less power at the end of the day. And can't you easily define who's Jewish? I mean, yeah, there's a very official way to determine whether you're Jewish, which is whether your mother's Jewish or whether you converted an Orthodox synagogue. 
I mean, think about that. Defin- that's a closed definition. It is. Yeah, you either are or you aren't. Yep. Yep. There's and... no like, well, my grandfather was, but I'm not. <laughs> I mean, some people try, right? It's going to be interesting for my kids. But yeah, like officially, if your mom was Jewish, you were Jewish. And well, if I mean, your mom this... wasn't Jewish, you're not Jewish. You know, this takes us down those, you know, silly and stereotypical things that people often use to attack, um, you know, African-Americans, right? Like, how come you guys can't be organized like this group or that group? And and part of those are the very things that you've just pointed out, Jason. This, like, tremendous base of support. There's a um, there's a clear definition of who belongs in this group and who doesn't. There is also, like, um, opportunities to actually lobby for very clear outcomes around... Religious definitions. Yeah. You know, there's a, yeah. there's a whole host of things that unifies a group. That makes it much easier for you to organize them and move them in one direction or the other, right? That's very difficult for us to do if you think about that in, in sort of the African American community. What are our key issues? What what are our um what are what are our values? What are the things that we hold dear? Who are we define? Who I mean, someone else defines blackness, right? Mm. Plus, there's also the fact that lots and lots of black people, unfortunately, are, are constantly fighting for their lives. And I mean, just to like kind of again with this comparison like during the holocaust like jews were in no position to fight for this kind of stuff right at least not in europe but now in the united states we're relatively comfortable we don't have you know the disadvantages or constant threats that that black people do it's easier to lobby for longer range things right for for bigger picture things when you know you don't have an enormous percentage of your community incarcerated and voting rights being taken away and and that kind of thing so then maybe humor is a default, Chris. It's a default to the powerless, no? I need to think about it because I, I don't I don't want to be I don't be completely completely humorless. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be I don't be like we can't laugh about anything. But while we we're talking, I'm just thinking about different things that we don't joke about and why we don't joke about them. You know, and I'm just trying to I'm trying to see where the power lines exist there. And how that translates to groups. I'm going to think more about that. And just also, I'm just thinking about like, like me particularly, like not enjoying jokes about slavery or any of that. I, I we need to think through that a little bit. But uh, while I think, let's talk about recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. Do you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience? Trisha, what's your deal? So I've been trying to um, read more. How's um, that going? Me too. It's so hard. It's super difficult. And this is, this is, this, I mean, this comes from someone who's a reader. Yeah. But yeah. like, I'm having a really difficult time. Like, I've actually given myself an assigned task. You know, when you tell um, uh, Google that you want to do an activity and then it like assigns you blocks in your schedule to do it. And you're like, oh, I want to do it three days a week. And it's like, it looks like you have an opening here. I'm going to put it there. Wait, so I've got- I have no idea what you're talking about. That's fascinating. I didn't know such a functionality existed. Grandpa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I've never thought you... to tell Google to help me organize my time. That's... Yeah. Like if you go into Google Calendar, it'll ask you if it's there's really... something you want to accomplish. And then, and you'll, and you'll be like, Google, I want to read more. Or I want to figure out how to ride a bike or something like that. And it just finds holes in your schedule and offers you opportunities to fill it with something. So what I, I've been reading, and I, I like it so far. I mean, it's difficult to recommend a book that you're in the middle of, but I've been really enjoying it. Be careful. <laughs> it's like you. All the TV shows I recommend by the end. <laughs> Last episode of Watchmen was, uh, so I'm already like, oh, oh no. Boy. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. So, I, um, so what I've done is I've actually done like um, Kindle Unlimited. 
to help me with this project. <laughs> and so I am reading Morgan Jerkins' This Will Be My Undoing. She's a poet, so it's both like it's an autobiographical book, but it involves some poetry and it, it's like a telling this a coming of age story for her in some ways. And I'm enjoying it so far. I'm about 12% in, which I love that you can know that. <laughs> going to take you six hours 43 minutes i know it says it can take your reading this is so horrific it says it can take me three hours y'all i really should get through this um i know um anyway so it's been really enjoyable i it's been interesting to listen to read a story of someone who i think is like almost my age maybe a little bit younger and so her references i understand and her um and her experiences i there are parts of it that resonates with me about like being like the only black girl in certain spaces and like what that was about for her and i think in the very first chapter she sort of explores her own anti-blackness which i think is really interesting to see people tackle in um in stories um so and for her to be so honest about that i'm I'm really excited by it um so this will be my undoing is what i'm going to recommend hopefully we we all finish it at the same time if you all decide to pick it up um it's gotten really great reviews and so i want to um i I really want to enjoy it so we'll see i'm i'm about to get on a flight at some point in time so i think i will accomplish that by finishing it i'll let you know how it turns out (laughs) great jason i heard on the TED Radio Hour, the segment, How Can You Open Source Building Your House? And it was with this guy, Alistair Parvin, who did a TED Talk. And he was talking about things I just have not heard about at all. He's co-founder of WikiHouse, mm. which is an open source construction kit. And I'm just I'll say one thing he said. It was one of many things he said that like blew my mind. It's just like... One of those moments where I discover like there's all this stuff going on I had no idea about. He said something to the effect of the 20th century was about democratizing consumption. And that was like kind of Henry Ford and, you know, everybody buys a car and like everyone can consume. And he said the 21st century needs to be about democratizing production. And it was just fascinating. (laughs) I don't know. Wow, the the reviews are in, Jason. (laughs) Um, I'm going to recommend an episode of This American Life, the podcast, because I was reminded of it while we were talking about our conversation earlier. It it first aired October 6, 2017. It's episode 627. And I'm recommending Act 2, which is the segment called History is Not a Toy by B.A. Parker. And it is about a museum in Baltimore called the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. Oh, yes, yes. B.A. Parker had gone there as a kid, and the depictions of slavery and treatment of Black people stuck with her. It was very terrifying. And so she went back as an adult, and she talks about her experience. It's worth a listen. It is one of the things that sparked the question that I asked today on the podcast when I heard it way back when. So everyone give it a listen, and let's all have a think together about, um, you know, the brutality of the American human experience. Hmm. And on that note, no. (laughs) (laughs) See, and that cheerful note. Can we lighten it up before we say goodbye? Jesus. You need to lighten it up. You're trying to tell people that a little bit of of seriousness is important. So now you want to lighten it up? Normally we go out laughing, but today we're going to go out deadly serious, everybody. (laughs) Somber. Trisha, please. Maintain your decorum. Uh, 
See, I don't want to be completely humorless. Like, that's not what I mean. I just. Do you remember when people were afraid of being like, like a vegetarian or like an environmentalist because it was such a humorless endeavor? Yeah, Jason, remember that. <laughs> but that was just the reputation. Liberals, liberals can't. It was a lie. It was a lie. You could be. You can have fun and be an environmentalist too. Stop. Can it. you, Jason? I think I have fun. Yes, I think so. Someone hangs out with you a bit. Well, I have to tell you, this vegetarianism thing over the last uh, 25, almost 30 years that we've been friends, uh, it's given you lots of, it's been a font of humor for you. I mean, I have like a tight vibe based on your vegetarianism. <laughs> oh, Oh, God. And on that note, everybody, bye. 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 <laughs>